listening to the Bible 126 show. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. We're in Judges. We're in chapters 17 and 18. And uh, we finished with uh, Samson and so on. The rest of the book, 17 through 21 in fact, apparently took place earlier. They're not chronological. It's most likely some of the events we're going to read about occurred probably prior to, you know, with with Samson and all of that, uh, 13 through 16. The movements of the tribe of Dan that we're going to see in chapter 18 doesn't fit the scenario if the Philistines were as strong as they were during the days of Samson. And they were that strong. In fact, they stayed strong until, of course, uh, uh, the time of uh, Saul and David and so on, which they're finally contained. The war against Benjamin that we're going to see in the later chapters also would have been impossible if the Philistines had been in charge. So chapter 17 to 21 seemed to be added by the writer at the end sort of as a capsule of just how confused and wicked the people had become. It's not as if the chronology, as if they're events themselves that are that profound, as much as making the point that he's been, that the, the chronicler has been making all along. There are three areas in life in which there was rampant confusion in Israel. The home, the ministry, and the national social order. And God established all three institutions early in the chapter of Genesis. He established the home, uh, human government, and of course the worshiping community. Israel under the Old Covenant and the church under the New Covenant. And on the first of these, both in time but also in significance, is the home. And that's what we're really going to sort of focus on here in uh, chapter 17. See, when God wedded Eve to Adam, he really established a uh, foundation that uh, for all social institutions. When that foundation crumbles, then uh, things really begin to fall apart. So we're going to go right on in to uh, chapter 17. And I'm just going to sort of subtitle this, Confusion in the Home. And there was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah. Now, the name Micah means who is like Yahweh or Jehovah. This guy certainly did not honor the Lord. He may may have thought he was, but he's pretty confused. It's ironic, in fact, that a guy by the name of Micah would establish an apostate shrine uh, in his uh, home with an unlawful priesthood. That's basically what's going to unfold here. He had a family, but not much is said about his family. We hear mostly about his mother. Apparently his mother lived with him and uh, was quite wealthy. And someone had stolen, apparently, 1,100 shekels of silver from the mother, and she pronounced a curse on the thief, not knowing (laughs) that she was cursing her own son. He was the thief. Now, these 1,100 shekels uh, shouldn't be confused with 1,100 shekels each that each the Lord of the Philistines gave Delilah. For some reason, 1,100 shekels seems to be an interesting unit because it shows up, you know, in in the Samson narrative, but uh, no, no connection. Anyway, uh, verse 2, Micah said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursest, and spakest thou also in mine ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. His mother said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. Now, she apparently was trying to offset the curse, see. She found his own son. Well, I guess she figures that if she blesses him, that should sort of offset the curse. (laughs) At least that's a plan of neutralization. But notice, so we understand this guy, um, it was fear of the curse, not fear of the Lord, that motivated the son to confess that he, he was a thief here. But we get to verse 3, And when he had restored the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord from my hand uh, for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore I will restore it unto thee. Yet he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took two hundred shekels of silver and gave them to the founder, who made thereof a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. 
Now, you should understand, this is an act of disobedience anyway to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 4. You know, it, it, but this reflects, I think that's the intention here too, to understand just how depraved the people got, don't even understand that they're, uh, that this is uh, ungodly. And now, this phrase in the Hebrew here of a carved image and a cast idol suggests like there's two objects of false worship, an image carved out of stone or wood and then a cast idol made of some metal poured into a mold. Uh, some scholars think that there's a, it gets into a grammatical issue that they were combined some way. That's really not essential to our purpose. But in, when we get in chapter 18, it, it, it seems to underscore the objects were clearly... So he's got not just an idol, he's got a collection of them. It gets worse as we go. Verse 4, um, you restore the money and so on. In gratitude for the return of the money, so she dedicated part of the, you know, the silver to the Lord, in her mind, and made an idol out of it. Do you see a contradiction there? See, not in their mind, that's the point. Now, 200 silver shekels is about several thousand dollars. Big money. So, okay, the man Micah had a house of gods, or idols, and made an ephod and a teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. So he really has no concept of the Torah, of the Aaronic priesthood, or what have you. So the, now an ephod is a, it's a priestly garment. It's an object of worship and uh, for a priest to wear. And some of the idols were teraphim, and that's a special kind of idol, but not, we don't have to get into that too much. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We've heard that phrase accounted again and again and again in the book of Judges. It's the idiomatic phrase that characterizes that period. I think here it's really clear that what the writer is trying to communicate is things were bad news. Not just because there's no king, that's part of it, there's no leadership, but also because everybody wrote their own rules. Everybody did what's right in their own eyes. And again, one of the things just to underscore here, there are four characteristics all through the book of Judges. That there was no king in Israel, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, that there was a disparagement of the word of God, and they were in bondage. And I never realized it until we got into the study that the book of Judges is a book of prophecy. Look at our land today. Look at the world today. The number one problem is there's no king in Israel. There will be. He's coming. The other thing is everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Value relativism. You have your truth, I have mine. Wrong. Wrong. God writes the rules. And the absence of the word of God in, our, in, our, in a society and so forth. And as a result, we are in bondage. Now just to pause here for a minute, can you imagine any family more confused than this one? They think they're worshiping the Lord. That's in their mind. You get that impression. But they've got idols. They've got false priests. They do it and, and, and so forth. Now they've managed in just these few verses, probably all in one day virtually, to break seven of the Ten Commandments and not feel the least bit guilty about it. They thought they were serving the Lord by all this. Son didn't honor his mother, but instead stole from her, then lied about it. First he coveted it, and then he stole it, of course. And according to Colossians 3, you know, uh, 3, 5, coveting is idolatry. We don't think of it that way. But Paul makes that very clear. Then he lied about the whole enterprise until the curse scared him into repenting or confessing. Then he broke the 5th, 8th, ninth, and 10th commandments. He broke the 1st and 2nd by uh, having a shrine of false gods at his home. And... Uh, According to Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9, when he stole the silver, he broke the third commandment and took the name of the Lord in vain. Breaking seven of the Ten Commandments without even leaving home. Now, that's an accomplishment. Yeah. The mother didn't deal with her son's sins. His character certainly didn't improve by the way she handled it. She was corrupt herself, so how could she correct? Now, Micah did not only have a false shrine, he ordained his son to be a priest. Certainly, he should have known that God had ordained this, the family of Aaron to be their priests, the only priests in Israel. Anybody that was outside Aaron's family that served as priest was ordained in the Torah to be killed. 
They took it, God took it seriously. And of course, because they didn't take the Word of God seriously, their home is a place of confusion. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I suspect maybe not quite so grossly, but many of us are not that in, in that much better shape. Okay, verse 7. We introduce another player here. There was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. Well, now that's interesting. How can he be out of the family of Judah, yet be a Levite? There's a lot of scholastic discussion about that. I'll come back to that point. The man departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place, and he came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. So this is a guy that presumably is a Levite, looking for a job. You see a contradiction there. <laughs> Micah said to him, Whence comest thou? He said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. Well, that's interesting. Now, the fact that he's from the family of Judah could, could be an illusion simply that he's from that region. At the same time, there's some other aspects I'll come to as we, as we go into this. Uh, he will be in chapter 18 identified as the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. Well, there you got a problem because Gershom was of Aaron, not of Manasseh. But in the Hebrew text, there's the only difference between uh, Moses and uh, Manasseh is a little noon. And the noon is placed above the text. And the speculation by some scholars is that some scribe added that so that he wouldn't look like a son of Moses because they didn't want a son of Moses to be an idolater. Well, the scribe that did that should have done his homework and remember that Aaron was an idolater at one time. But uh, So there is some confusion as to was he a Levite or not. The general consensus is that he was a Levite and what we're dealing here is with a well-intentioned textual manipulation. But it's not essential to our thing. He obviously, though, apparently was a Levite and he uh, it was probably there because the people were not supporting uh, the tabernacle and the ministry the way they should be or he would have had plenty to do. Why would you want to live in one of the Levitical cities if you're going to starve? So he's on his way looking for a job. One of the first signs of apathy, spiritual apathy, is a failure of the people to support the work of God. And that's obviously also what's going on here. So he came to the Mount Ephraim, to the house where Micah lived. And Micah said to him, Whence comest thou? He said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. A place, you know, a job in effect. Okay? The last map we saw highlighted Israel, especially from the point of view of their enemies, the Ammonites in the east, when we're talking about Gideon and all of that, and the Philistines in the west, when we're talking about Samson and all that, last few chapters. Here we're going to focus really on the same hometown, roughly, Zora, and just north of that is the hills of Ephraim. We're going to migrate all the way up to the top tip, but we'll take that as it comes. There's a region along the coast that was allocated under Joshua to the tribe of Dan. But they're not cutting it there. They're not able to, to sustain themselves, so they're on the prowl for an alternative. And that's what part of chapter 18 is going to focus on. And we're going to go all the way up to Laish, at the very top of the map, virtually on the border of Lebanon. Anyway, this guy's looking for a job. So Micah said unto him, Dwell with me, and be unto me a father and a priest. And I will give thee ten shekels of silver by the ear, and a suit of apparel, and thy victuals. So the Levite went in, gave him a job offer. Instead of seeking the mind of the Lord, what is Jonathan doing? He's just out on the prowl himself. He's a hireling, trying to find a place to work. And uh, he's really, in effect, abandoning any calling uh, to uh, be a servant of God. Again, this is an idiom, not just about a guy, but the times in which he was dwelling. Just one guy. But I think one of the messages of the judges is that one guy can make a difference. All through the book of Judges, one guy makes a difference. Here's a guy that could have but didn't. And instead of being available to God, he was uh, agreeable only to men. He found a comfortable home and clothing and food, and so he took on. So in uh, the next verse, And the Levite was content to dwell with a man, and the young man was unto him as one of his sons. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then said Micah, Now know I that the Lord will do me good, seeing that I have a Levite to be my priest. <laughs> the 
The Levites uh, were called to assist the priests in the tabernacle, to teach the law to the people, to be involved with the sacred music. And Jonathan gave all that up to be an idolater. He didn't work for the living God. He worked for Micah and his idols. So he's offered more money and uh, prestige, apparently, and gave thanks for that. We'll see that in verse 19 later. And uh, now he's going to assist his new employer by stealing his goods. But that's coming. See, whenever you have a hireling ministry, you got problems. The church, the church needs true and faithful shepherds. They're not there for personal gain. Who will stay with the flock to feed and protect them. True shepherds don't see their work as a career or a better job when the opportunity comes. They stay where God plants them and don't move until he sends them. That's part of the background here. And as we sort of go through this, we have to recognize that God must really be grieving when he sees uh, churches worship the idols of ministerial success, statistics, buildings, square footage, what have you. The sad part of this whole story is that now Micah thinks that he had the favor of God because there was a genuine Levitical priest in the house as private chaplain. By the way, all of that is forbidden in the Torah. Numbers 3.10 forbids this. He practiced a false religion, worshipped false gods, and threw Jehovah in for good measure. All that, of course, will be taken from him shortly. So let's jump in and take a look at chapter 18. I'm going to call this confusion in the society. We're going to up, upscale one. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites sought them an inheritance to dwell in. For unto that day all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel. Under Joshua, by lot, they all had been allocated areas, as you may recall. Dan was almost virtually on the seacoast, but it's an area they were having a tough time uh, uh, you know, subduing to themselves. And so they've got a problem. If the people had forgotten their, their, their following the Lord, certainly they also were not no longer obeying God or uh, governing it the way God had set up. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, it said. And so the result is competition and confusion. Now the tribe of Dan, of course, descended from uh, Jacob's fifth son, born to Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah, back in Genesis 30. It was not a large tribe, but it was given a choice territory when the tribal boundaries were assigned. That's all back in Joshua 19, if you want to dig into your notes so you can... Make note of that and dig into it. God, by the way, if you look at Acts 17, verse 26, God also assigns the area of nations. Most of us overlook that. But it's clearly there in Acts 17, 26. But clearly, certainly in the case of Israel, God had ordained certain areas for certain tribes, but the Danites are going to ignore that. They're being pushed by the Amorites, and they're also being pushed by the Philistines, and uh, they're not able to defeat or dispossess the enemy probably because their spiritual condition, among other things. So they coveted somebody else's land. They're on the prowl to see what land they can just take over. And they're willing to do it in a violent manner. That's what's really up here. In verse 2 of chapter 18, the children of Dan sent of their family five men. You can look at them as spies or a reconnoitering or a, you know, intelligence gathering group. Five men from their coasts, men of valor, from Zorah and from Eshterol. Remember, those are the, that was the, home, uh, the hometowns we talked about earlier to spy out the land and to search it. And they said unto them, Go, search the land, who when they came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, they lodged there. So these five guys are on the prowl, and they pull up with their Harley Davidsons at the house of Micah and just invite themselves in. It's interesting that uh, they run into this young man. When they were by the house of Micah, they knew the voice of the young man, the Levite. What that really means is they recognized his dialect. They're puzzled. They're in Ephraim, and he has an accent probably of Judah. And they turned in thither and said unto him, Who brought thee thither? And what makest thou in this place? What hast thou here? He said unto them, Thus and thus dealeth Micah with me, and hath hired me, and I am his priest. <laughs> now the minute they have a priest, and it's on somebody else's payroll, they want to take advantage of that. He said unto him, Ask counsel, we pray thee of, the, of God that we may know whether our way which we go shall be prosperous. These guys are not shy. They're just you know, trying to uh, you know, find out what's going on here. 
And uh, you can call it, it's probably the level of superstition. I wouldn't call it area of faith. And Jonathan, like any good hireling, will tell them what they want to hear. Everybody knows the way you fill a church from the pulpit is to tell people what they want to hear. So Jonathan's no fool. He's figured that out. Okay. And my tongue is in my cheek on this whole thing, of course. And uh, preceded unto them, go in peace before the Lord is your way wherein ye go. So he gives them a blessing, in effect. He encourages them. You would kind of wonder um, what basis he gave them that uh, kind of encouragement. Jonathan seems awfully confident. The outward success of uh, their mission didn't correspond with the Lord's revealed plan for the tribe of Dan. In other words, they already the tribe of Dan should have known what God had in mind. They're going to go their own way, and they're going to reap the results, as you'll see shortly. The tribe of Dan is going to indulge in some conquests at the northern tip of Israel. The tribe of Dan will also be the tribe through which idolatry will enter the northern kingdom under Jeroboam. And there are many scholars that believe that the reason when you get to Revelation chapter 7, there's a mystery. Because in Revelation chapter 7, you've got the 12 tribes, you've got 12,000 evangelists ordained or sealed from each of the 12 tribes. But if you go through that list, the tribe of Dan isn't there. You look at that list of Revelation, there's no tribe of Dan there. Say, that's why I thought there's 12 tribes. Well, not exactly. There's really 13. See, remember, Joseph had two sons, and his, his sons, which were Jacob's grandchildren, Jacob adopted. So there's really 13 tribes, technically. So if you want 12 tribes and you want all of them, you take the tribe of Joseph as a tribe. If for some reason you want to leave one of the 12 out in your list, for example, military order, because the Levites were exempt from military duty, you'll discover in the marching order there's still 12 tribes. Because you've got Levites out, but you've got Ephraim and Manasseh, the two tribes of Joseph, taking the separate tribes. Now in Revelation 7, it turns out you want 12 tribes, but you don't want Dan in there. If you look carefully, you'll find that the tribe of Dan is missing. In fact, most people miss, there's another tribe that's there but not named. Ah, yes. See, the other tribe that was involved with idolatry, just like Dan was, was Ephraim. When we get to Revelation 7, you'll find the list. It mentions Manasseh, and then it mentions Joseph. Well, if you already have Manasseh, all that's left of Joseph is Ephraim. So it's obviously Ephraim that he's talking about. But the Holy Spirit chooses not to mention him directly. But he's there. So that little list in Revelation 7 deserves some careful study. There's some other aspects to the tribe of Dan. I'll hold off for now. We'll get take it a little bit uh, later. Five men departed. They came to Laish. Now Laish, that's so casual. Laish is at the northern tip. It's virtually Lebanon. There's a lake that's even north of the Sea of Galilee, a small one. It's even north of that. It's really up there. Five men departed, came to Laish, and saw that the people there were therein how they dwelt carelessly after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure, there was no magistrate in the land that might uh, put them to shame in anything. And they were far from the Sidonians and had no business with any man. There's an isolated community, which means they're helpless. They're peacefully living there, minding their own business. The Danite says, goody, 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 goody. And they came unto their brethren to Zora, back down south in Eshtel, which is right on the border. Uh, it later becomes on the border of the Philistine country, but at this point it's the border of the Danites. And the brethren said to them, Well, what say ye? By the way, to give you a feeling for this, this, these five guys had traveled a hundred miles north from their encampment at uh, Zorah to Laish. The town is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee and about uh, 27 miles east of Tyre, which is on the seaboard, the Mediterranean. So it's inland, about 27 miles, and about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Peaceful people, no trees with anybody, no one protecting them. Unsuspecting and secure is what the Hebrew implies. It was isolated from the Sidonians, the nearest settlements, by a range of mountains. It's isolated from Syria by Mount Hermon and, uh, the, uh, and a range of mountains. And no closer. So it's a perfect target for the warlike Danites. So the brethren said, okay, give us a report. What did you guys find? And they said, arise, that we may go up against them. For we have seen the land, and behold, it's very good. 
And are you still? Be not slothful to go and to enter to possess it. In other words, let's go, guys. Let's not, let's not dally. And when you go, you shall come unto a people secure and to a large land. For God hath given into your hands a place where there is no want of anything that is in the earth. So they're pretty excited about the prospects here. Now their theological affirmation is a little debatable. But how often are we all guilty of that? You know, it's available, so God must be blessing us. Be careful. And they went from thence of the family of the Danites out of Zorah and out of Eshtael, 600 men appointed with weapons of war. And they went up and pitched in Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. Therefore they call that place Manahdan unto this day. Behold, it is behind Kiriath-Jerim. This is uh, this campsite. Uh, by the way, Mana uh, Dan is simply the camp of Dan. Is all it means, and that's by the way where Samson uh, uh, later will sense the uh, work of God in, in his life. And uh, you know, when you really understand what the Danites were like, you begin to respect. You know, you're a little less hard on Samson. I mean, he didn't have it all together either, but uh, he's a far cry from these guys. Anyway, they went up uh, on the past thence to Mount Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. So between Zorah and where they started, Mike, the house of Micah is up in the Ephraim hills on the way going north. So they stopped by this house of Micah again. Then answered the five men that went to spy out the country of Laish and said unto the brethren, Do you know that there is in these houses an ephod and teraphim and a graven image and a molten image? Now therefore consider what you have to do. This is what we'd call a target-rich environment, Okay. They turned thitherward and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, even unto the house of Micah, and saluted him. And the six hundred men appointed with their weapons of war, which were of the children of Dan, stood by the entering of the gate. Now that's got to be impressive. That's got to be impressive. And the five men that went to, up to spy the land, they went up and came thither and took the graven image and the ephod and the teraphim and the molten image. And the priest stood in the entering of the gate with 600 men that were appointed with weapons of war. And these went into Micah's house and fetched the carved image, the ephod, the teraphim, the molten image. And then said the priest unto them, What are you doing? They said to him, Hold thy peace. Lay thy hand upon thy mouth and go with us. Be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for thee to be a priest unto the house of one man or thou be a priest unto a tribe and a family in Israel? Hey, man, you can broaden your ministry here. Here's a real opportunity. Must be of the Lord, of course. The priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod, the teraphim, the graven image, and went in the midst of the people. So he was converted to their purpose, I suppose. You know, with 600 armed men outside your gates, you're not going to put up much resistance. But uh... So they turned and departed and put the little ones and the cattle and the carriage before them. When they stood, When they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men that were in the houses near to Micah's house were gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. His neighbors are, you know, upset about this. They cried unto the children of Dan. They turned their face and said unto Micah, What aileth thee that thou comest with such a company? He said, You have taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest. And you are gone away, and what am I more? What is this that ye say unto me? What aileth thee? You know, this is... Um, too funny for words, really. You've got he's worshiping gods that need his protection. You stop and think about it. Do you see? Do you see a contradiction there? A little backwards. There are lots of scriptures come to mind, but we'll just keep moving here. Now they obviously were anticipating that Micah was going to chase them because they put the valuables, the children, all that up in front of them. So the the, the army was the rear guard because they knew the attack would be coming from behind them when Micah was chasing them. When Micah says here, uh, "What have I more?" This really reveals his bankruptcy, his spiritual bankruptcy. They take a few of these trinkets and he feels stripped naked. As if they're, you know, again, it reveals the folly and the tragedy of uh, being without a true and living God. Idolaters worship the gods they carry. Christians worship a God that carries them. Big difference. Well, they took the things which Micah had made and the priest which he had, and came unto Laish, unto a people that were at quiet and secure. And guess what happened? 
And they smote them with the edge of the sword and burnt the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. And they had no business with any man. It was in the valley that lieth at Beth Rehob. And uh, they built a city and dwelt therein. So the Danites take over. Now, it's kind of uh, interesting. Back in Genesis 49, Jacob, as he dies, prophesies on each of the twelve tribes. There's a little riddle. Uh, one of them is longer than the others. But when he gets to Dan, Jacob is leaning on his staff, but he's just before he dies. He says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path, that biteth his horse's heels so that his rider shall fall backward. Boy, how descriptive. How descriptive. It's interesting that he mentions the serpent, but the very next verse he talks about salvation. I've waited for thy salvation, O Lord. It's almost in juxtaposition of Genesis 3.15, where God declares war on Satan and speaks of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the, and the seed of the woman. Seed of the woman being a becoming thus from that day on a title of Jesus Christ. And of course, everybody forgets there's two seeds. Seed of the woman and seed of the serpent. And that's exactly what Dad did in a cruel and crafty, they, they literally, oh wait, there's also another one, Deuteronomy 33. Moses also predicts over each of the tribes in, in Deuteronomy 33. Some people call it the Song of Moses. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp, and he shall leap from Bashan. And that's exactly what they did. They leapt from the Mount Hermon to this valley to wipe out Laish and become, if you look on Bible maps, you'll see it called the city of Dan. Its original label was Laish. We had the opportunity once to be up there. It's really up north, virtually in Lebanon. And one of the strange things that's there, it's very rare, is the, a mud gate. Mud gates were a style of building, but they didn't survive because they were water-soluble, pretty much. But in this particular one, there's some kind of cave-in so that for some strange, peculiar, unique circumstances, there is a preserved mud gate that goes back to the days of Abraham. Breathtaking to realize that this gate is a gate that Abraham himself probably went through. The mud gate at Laish. Very interesting. They called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan their father, who was born unto Israel. Howbeit the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the children of Dan set up a graven image, no surprise. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. Again, that's where this little nun is there. It's a, it's a, it's a, a textual problem. He and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. Now this is another mystery that students uh, wrestle with because what captivity we're talking about. It certainly isn't a captivity that we usually talk about, Assyrian or Babylon, that comes much, much later. There's either a captivity that is not recorded or it's an allusion to the Philistine oppression, which is yet future from this event. And they set up Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. The tabernacle was at Shiloh in these days. Now, a couple of other things about the tribe of Dan. The more you study uh, the tribe of Dan, and, and the more you discover these things, the, well, uh, first of all, uh, I mentioned Dan is missing from the lists of tribes in Revelation. I trace this back, by the way, this idea, there's a concept that, that Antichrist will come out of the tribe of Dan. And that concept goes all the way back to Irenaeus in his writings uh, against heresies. Um, he, gets, he draws that belief from a passage in Jeremiah 8.16 in the Greek, in the Septuagint. From Dan shall we hear the noise of swift, his swift horses. So for that reason, and some others I'll come to, Irenaeus suspects that the Antichrist will come out of Dan. I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying he will, but you'll hear that uh, echo through some of the literature, that the Antichrist, somehow this tribe of Dan is pretty sinister stuff. And uh, that's one of the reasons it goes back to Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers. But there's something else. When you start studying the Bible, you discover something else about Dan. You know, I mentioned his, his name is omitted from the list in Revelation 7. It's also omitted in First Chronicles, the first 10 chapters of Chronicles. First Chronicles, 10 chapters, is a detailed genealogy of all the uh, uh, patriarchs and their descendants. It goes on and on and on and on. You wade through 10 chapters of stuff. But you miss something if you're not careful tribe of Dan isn't there. He's omitted. 
from the list. Is that an oversight? Or is the Holy Spirit doing something? Well, there's a couple of other places that most commentators miss too. There happens that there are other uh, uh, genealogies. One is in Genesis 46. When you get to Dan, it sounds like the name of his sons is Hushim. And most Bible uh, lexicons, the only place the word occurs, and, and uh, they suspect that that just means that must mean a descendant of Dan. But if you do some homework on this, it turns out the word really means to grow dark, to have a dark color, to grow dim, to make dark, cause darkness, hide, conceal, obscure, confuse. It's as if the Holy Spirit you know, He's going through all these different patriarchs, this tribe, and here are all their sons. Here's all their sons. Dan, those guys. And it goes on. Now, it doesn't list his descendants. He obviously had descendants. These descendants are what's going on here in Judges 18. They're not listed in, in, in Genesis 46. You get to Numbers 26. In verse 42, the same thing. Right in the middle of all these genealogies of the patriarchs, and you get to Dan, it says Shuham. It only gets translated once. It means the son of Dan, or progenitor of the family. That's an inference. That's not what the word means. You know what the word means? It means pit digger. It comes from Shuach, which means to sink down or bow down or sinks down or sunk down. You discover the Bible from cover to cover seems to take it out on the tribe of Dan. Several major lists, he's not even there. Places where he does show up, it's with the back of the hand. Those guys with a derogatory label. It's all because he was the means that idolatry entered the land because they set up a graven image and that's going to lead to... It gets worse and worse and worse. The, uh, in, in, uh, the golden calves get set up there under Jeroboam's in uh, 1 Kings 12 and 2 Kings 10. And uh, the, uh, the shrine that apparently Moses' grandson, Jonathan, um, set up there, it and Bethel are the two golden calves that uh, are principal in the... Uh, whole narrative of the northern kingdom until the Assyrians wipe out the whole northern kingdom. Now, so you don't get confused, some members of the tribe of Dan stayed down south where they belonged, the earlier separate, and and they had the Philistines as their western neighbors at that time, and that's where Samson and all that stuff takes place. The southern remnant of Dan apparently gets absorbed into Judah. The northern tribe of Dan gets uh, taken captive by the by the Assyrians. So much for Judges 17, 18. You know, there, somebody has said there's only three philosophies uh, of life in today's world. First is, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. Second one is, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. And the third is, what's mine is yours, I'll share it. Which one did the tribe of Dan embrace? Your first, you know, your second and third guesses don't count. Okay, so... Uh, so tribe Dan, first tribe to adopt the adulterous system of religion. And uh, even though the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and all of that was at Shiloh, they preferred their images and idols and so forth. And uh, Jeroboam I would build golden calves there and so forth on it goes. So ends this little bit, and I finished early so I could sneak in something else. I'd like to take you on a little excursion. This is speculative. It's uh, way out in left field, but it's kind of fun. It's, and... Uh, the first world leader was a guy by the name of Nimrod. He was the first world dictator, Genesis 10 and so forth. And I'm going to suggest the possibility that the guy we call the Antichrist, this final super leader that has, has 33 different labels in the Old Testament, 13 in the New, we call, call him the Antichrist. I'm going to call him for this discussion Nimrod II. Okay? We all know about the uh, ten horns, the ten kings that will be part of the, Ro- the revived Roman Empire. He is an eleventh. He's the little horn of Daniel 7, the little horn of Daniel 8. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just read Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, and you'll discover when there's ten horns, eleventh comes up, take, knocks down three of them, and takes over the whole, whole bunch. So another title, one of the several titles for the Antichrist is the little horn of Daniel 7, or the little horn of Daniel 8. Now, there is a strange passage... In Micah 5, which talks about the end times. And the phrase Micah uses, when the Assyrian shall come into our land. Satan has had seven super kingdoms. 
In Revelation 12, verse 3, it summarizes these. appeared another wonder in heaven, behold a great red dragon. Who's the great red dragon? Satan. Having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And as generally, most scholars seem to recognize that that seems to appear to that there are seven primary empires in the Bible. The first is Egypt. goes back to the oldest. Then Assyria rises to power. Assyria not only rules for, I think, three or four centuries, it strangely disappears. It gets taken over by Babylon. Babylon was just one of the cities within the Assyrian Empire, but it grows to be powerful and takes over the whole thing. What's interesting is Assyria disappears. When Alexander the Great comes along later, he walked over and didn't even know it was there. It wasn't rediscovered until the 18th century. They discovered Nineveh and began to read There it is. One of the mysteries about Assyria is why did it disappear so quickly? It's a mystery. Anyway, after Assyria comes Babylon. Most of us know about Babylon because it's so prominent in so much of the biblical literature. After Babylon comes Persia, Greece, and then Rome in two phases, what I'll call Rome I and Rome II. And we know that because uh, the Rome II has, uh, speaks of ten kings or ten horns in Daniel 2 and uh, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, Revelation 17, all deals with these ten horns. So it's probably familiar. I'm going to call these last five Daniel's four plus one. What I mean by that is Daniel clearly sees four empires in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But Rome he sees in two distinct phrases. It's iron and then iron mixed with clay. When you get to the fourth, in Daniel 7 there's four creatures, but the fourth creature goes into a second phase. So most, most scholars recognize that Rome 1 and Rome 2 are two distinct phases, separated by centuries, obviously, of, of the same, somehow, in some respects, the same empire. So most of us know Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. We don't dwell in Egypt and Assyria because that was all past when Daniel did all his writings, of which we get so much insight. Well, we get to Revelation 17, and you have a very interesting summary here. It says, there are, this is John writing now during the Roman Empire. There are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is, and the other is not yet come. When he cometh, he must continue a short space. Who's he talking about? Okay, Rome too, so to speak. Okay. Well, five are fallen. John is writing during the Roman Empire. Behind them in history was Egypt, Syria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. Five, the five major empires. Five are fallen. And one is. Who's that? The one that's around while John is writing. Right? One is. That's, there's no mystery there. It's this other one that's kind of strange. The other has not yet come. Well, that's Rome too, as we'll call it, with the ten horns and the ten toes or whatever you want to call it. Okay? Good. So far, so good. But the next verse, Revelation 17, verse 11, goes on and says, The beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, but he's of the seven, and goeth into perdition. What does that verse mean? I've wondered that for five decades. I have a library, an exhaustive library, thousands of volumes, biblical stuff. And I've got a collection that must go two yards long of commentaries on Daniel. And also even longer than that in Revelation. I've been through all of them. There's all kinds of conjectures, none of which are too over, are, are really convincing. What does that mean? I have no idea. But let's explore it a little bit more carefully. Remember now, Rome too, as I'll call it, with the ten horns, gets taken over by an eleventh horn. That eleventh horn is the Antichrist. He's the coming world leader. He's the man of sin, the son of perdition. He goes by 33 different labels in the Old Testament, 13 in the New, as, as compiled by Arthur W. Pink, for one example. But the eleventh horn, Daniel 7 and 8, little horn of the seven, little horn of eight, becomes the eleventh horn. Okay, this eighth guy is this guy. This verse must relate to him. He's the eighth. But he's of the seven. Well, that means, he's, if he's of the seven, what does that mean? He must be somehow out of the previous seven empires, these seven uh, heads of seven crowns of the past. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and Rome too. Except there's another clue. The beast that was and is not 
Even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goes in perdition. Oh boy. Is he a clone? Maybe. Is he a reincarnation? Maybe. Not a real one, but a demonically uh, manipulated one. I don't believe in reincarnation. Don't misunderstand me. But the demons could simulate one. And they would know the history to pull it off. Okay, but this is one that was and is not. Well, wait a minute. Egypt's around. Babylon's around. We call it Iraq. Persia is around. We call it Iran. Greece is around. Rome is certainly around. In fact, the whole Western culture is... Rome, too, is forthcoming. Is it possible that the empire that was and is not is Assyria? Is that why Isaiah and Micah both refer to the Antichrist as the Assyrian? Is there a reason here? Micah says something very interesting. Micah 5, verses 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. This man, the man is inserted, it's actually this one, shall be the peace. Name this, I believe this is the Messiah. When the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Now the word shepherds can be stewards, whatever, it can be broader. There's seven shepherds and another guy to make up eight that are going to wipe out. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. Really? Interesting fact is that the Assyrians never set foot in Jerusalem. They tried. You go back and read your Bible, you remember Sennacherib was attacking Jerusalem. And Hezekiah prayed about it. And uh, when they attacked Jerusalem... An angel one night after dinner wiped out 185,000 Syrians. And Sennacherib's army went back home and never bothered them again. But this one says he's going to tread our palaces. They haven't done that yet. No, this is yet future. This is talking about the end times. And yet it's talking about two things in here catch my attention. The land of Assyria again, okay. We would call it the land of Babylon, except it's going back earlier for some reason. And the land of Nimrod. What a strange phrase. And who was Nimrod? The first world dictator. There's some mistranslations in the subtle but important ones in the King James. And he was the first, he was, Nimrod was the, uh, the guy that led to the Tower of Babel and, and, the, and, and the confusion of tongues and so forth. So anyway, that's just uh, some fun. It's interesting how these elements have resurfaced. Rome, when it was rising to power, in 146 B.C. it conquered Greece. In 133 B.C. it it conquered that which was Lysimachus' kingdom. 64 B.C. Seleucus' kingdom. These were the generals that divided up the Greek empire after Alexander's death. And finally, in 31 B.C., Egypt, Ptolemy's kingdom. And all these elements disappeared before the birth of Christ. Now we all, all of us, see, all of us fall into the trap when we think of the Roman Empire, when Daniel 9.27 says that the Antichrist is going to be, you know, be of the Romans, we think of them as Italy. No, we think of the Roman Empire. Okay, but we think of the Western Empire. We all fall into the trap. Because what we have done in our lives, see, when, when Rome started to get, when Constantine took over, he moved the capital of the world from Rome to Constantinople. The Roman Empire included the East. Rome starts to disintegrate about the 5th century. But Constantinople, Byzantium, endures for another thousand years before it finally falls. You and, we call it the Byzantine, we call it the Byzantine Empire. That's our label. The composite is the Roman Empire. The western leg, the eastern leg. But you and I, see, we don't think east. We think of Europe, and that's, a, that's our mindset. So when we think about Antichrist coming out of the Roman Empire, we immediately jump to Europe. Maybe we have a blind spot. Seleucus' kingdom. That's where the little horn comes out of. Now, it's interesting, in modern days, these all have reemerged. 1906, Iran gets its independence. 1921, Afghanistan. 1922, Egypt. 1922, Iraq. 1924, Turkey resurfaces. 1930, Lebanon. 1938, Syria, Jordan, Pakistan. And then, of course, Israel, 48. These ancient places are reemerging as individuals, so to speak, or as, as uh, independent nations to some extent. 
Egypt, of course, was the kings of the south, the Ptolemaic thing. Seleucus was the rest of them. Turkey, actually, some of Seleucus, some of the Lysimachus. Well, that's pretty interesting. From a Greek perspective, what does this thing look like from another perspective? Well, Iraq and Syria together constitute what used to be called, before Babylon, before the Babylonian Empire, Assyria. And there are some scholars, but they're a small voice. And I have to admit that uh, I have some commentaries I picked up back in the 1980s that hint at this, but don't drive it home. And I uh, I wasn't alert enough to it because they're not, you know, they don't they don't really push the idea. But the more you start putting scriptures together, you can come to this possible conjecture that the Antichrist will come out of that area that was called originally Assyria. And he is going to make a particular city his capital. And this is the off the wall part. The city he's going to make his capital is Babylon. I do not believe that Babylon in the Bible refers to New York City or America or or even Rome. Isaiah and Jeremiah clearly indicate that Babylon will be a major, probably the major city in the end times that's going to get wiped out in one hour. They hammered like Sodom and Gomorrah. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Isaiah did it before Babylon was even an empire. If you look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the, the emphasis of the book of Revelation, it's time for us to stop trying to spiritualize. Let's stand back and let's let the text talk to us. When you read Micah 5, when you read Isaiah 10 and 13 and 14, when you read Jeremiah 50 and 51, when you read Revelation 11, 13, 17, and uh, especially 17 and 18, see what, the Spirit, see what the Lord tells you. And I think so many of us jump to conclusions of our favorite Bible teachers. Don't you make the same mistake. Don't accept this view as if it's my own because it's very tentative exploration at the moment. But even if I was sold on it, don't accept my view. Do your own homework. Keep your mind open. Because the world is changing so fast as we speak. And yet everything that's happening is in the Scripture. We just need to recognize it. And I think it's time for us to, you know, look. The, in the Old Testament, there are 33 different allusions to the Antichrist. The ones that are interesting are Assyrian. The idle shepherd, that's the only physical description of the, the Antichrist in the Bible, in Zechariah 11, the last few verses. The little horn of Daniel 7, the little horn of Daniel 8. The prince that shall come of Daniel 9.26. The seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. The willful king, Daniel 11.36. And the New Testament, the angel of the bottomless pit, the Antichrist. We won't go all these. Antichrist, we obviously, really means the pseudo-Christ, by the way. The beast, the false prophet, the man of sin, son of perdition. These are familiar to our ears because we more traffic than the New Testament. The land of Nimrod. He, he founded uh, not only Babel, Babylon, but Nineveh and Assyria. The Fertile Crescent and uh, Babylon Empire. We, we went, went through all of these in the roots of war. We go through all the backgrounds on these things. And I won't take the time to go through it here. But uh, when Alexander dies, his empire is divided among four generals. Cassandra, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And Ptolemy pushes at Seleucus. These two guys fight for a, a dozen generations. And they're always fighting over Israel because it's a buffer between the two. That's why, and their whole careers are all laid out in Daniel chapter 11. In Daniel 11, the first couple of verses deal with the end of the Persian Empire. Cyrus, of course, you all know about from Daniel 5 and Isaiah 45. His son was Cambyses, and then Artaxerxes, and then Darius. And then Xerxes I, who is quite an impulsive character. He's the king of Esther. But what's not featured there, but another key fact of his life, is he made a disastrous attack against the Greeks. It was so hateful that it motivates Alexander 150 years later to uh, go after Persia. Yeah, real blood feud. Anyway, he, uh, Xerxes is followed by Artaxerxes Langemanus. He's very important to all of us because he's the one that gives the decree that triggers the 70 weeks of Daniel 9, and it's all Nehemiah 2 and so forth. But that gets you to Alexander the Great, who was 21 when he took over, and in 11 years conquers the entire world, the known world, all the way to India. All the way, but then he dies. By the way, we know where his capital was? 
Babylon. Interesting enough. His four generals divide the empire. Macedonian Greece to Cassander, Asia Minor, Thrace to Lysimachus, Syria and Babylon to Seleucus, and Egypt, Arabia, and Israel to Ptolemy. And of course, these last two guys are major features in Daniel, the rest of chapter Daniel 11. And you go through Daniel 11 carefully. You have all the Ptolemies and all the Seleucids. One by one by one, you've got uh, six of them here. All the way to verse 35. And the details of their careers are in those verses. If you take a good set of encyclopedias and read those verses, you can just hook it all up together. So much so that critics of Daniel have said Daniel had to have been written later. The problem with that is it was translated into Greek three centuries before Christ was born. That's, you know, that was about the time of Ptolemy Philadelphus up here in verse 6. <laughs> That's a matter of history. Whoever wrote Daniel. No, it's supernaturally done because their histories, their careers are laid out in advance. But what's exciting about this, the reason I get into this, is the last of these guys, from verse 21 through 35, is a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who causes the abomination of desolation, the, clen- the ultimate that which led to the Maccabean revolt and the cleansing of the temple from that event is what they celebrated Hanukkah. But the reason that's so important is because from Antiochus Epiphanes we understand what the, what the abomination is all about. Because Jesus makes reference to that prophetically. It's going to happen again. But the key point is, from verses 36 to, the, to th- verse 45, this chapter in Daniel details the career of the Antichrist and calls them there the kings of the north. What are the kings of the north? The Seleucids. The idioms are very clear. In Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, the little horn is from that area. In Daniel 11, again, if you let the text talk to you, you come to the conclusion that the Antichrist is the king of the north. He's from that region. He may even have some subtle genealogical link back. Titus Vespasian that destroyed Jerusalem was a descendant of Antiochus Epiphanes by some people's reckoning. Interesting stuff. And you go through 36 through 37. I won't take any time tonight. You can read it yourself. But you can go through the whole history of the Antichrist. And that's all we got. So it's not a briefing. It's just an excursion. But it's a, it's a call, I think, to set aside our presuppositions and to read the text for what it says and compare Scripture with Scripture and just watch the horizon. It's exciting times. So now let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we do praise you. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to do nothing but that which you reveal to your servants, the prophets. We thank you, Father, for the horizon that you've laid out so in such detail. But, Father, we also know that, but for your Holy Spirit, that we will just stumble. We ask you, Father, through your Spirit to guide us and lead us, especially into those portions of Scripture which you have for us, for each of us, for the days ahead. Father, we do pray that you would just reignite in each of our lives a hunger and a passion for your word. Oh, Father, help us to prioritize our affairs that we might really diligently study your word, that we might hear your voice, that we might discover precisely what it is you'd have of each of us in the days that remain. And Father, we thank you for the leadership in this country. We do pray, Father, that you would give them good counsel and discernment. We thank you, Father, for these leaders, and yet, Father, we know that unless you call the tune that we're heading for disaster, we do pray, Father, that you would guide all of our leadership to preserve the days ahead, that we might continue as a beachhead for the gospel to a hurting world. Oh, Father, we do come before your throne confessing our sins. For, Father, we, as we go through the book of Judges, we realize that in our own way we're also guilty of idolatry, of covetousness. We're guilty of a lack of diligence. We're guilty of presumptions, especially ingratitude. Oh, Father, help us, Father, to take every thought captive. Help us, Father, to walk with you moment by moment, day by day. 
and help our hearing, Father, we might hear your voice. That we would know your will for our lives. And Father, we bring before you those of us that are in need. You know what the needs are. We ask you for healing. We ask you for provision. We ask you for softer hearts, more openness. Give us discernment, Father, as we come before your throne with repentance, Father, seeking only you. We thank you, Father, for blessings beyond our numbering. But we do, Father, commit ourselves afresh into your hands this night. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.